Hi, Jazz. Hi, Lula. I am extremely awake right now. How about you? I am reasonably awake, but not extremely awake. What do you owe the extremely awake to? Sarcasm. Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah, I stared at a bunch of chronology of Israeli royals stuff for the last half an hour. Israelite royals? Israelite? Is that the demonym for the kingdoms? Yeah, that's a useful distinguishing between ancient and modern nation state. Oh, that's very fair. I mean, also the modern nation state of Israel doesn't have royals. True, but nevertheless. So that'll be fun to get into when I tell you about the context for this Haftarah portion. But has anything cool and queer or Jewish happened to you this week, Jazz? Well, I got a bunch of Jewish books this week, courtesy mostly of inheriting them from my grandfather. May his memory be a blessing. Thank you. So I've been looking at some Jewish books and I brought to our recording session today a different translation of the text than I ever have before because I took advantage of having access to a new text to try reading a new text. It was very difficult for me so I also read a JPS copy, but I (laughs) also read this other translation. So which translation is this? It is from the British and Foreign Bible Society, and it was printed in 1950. Okay. So when you say it's difficult, is it that they have a pretty literal translation of the words, or it's very King Jamesy, or what? So I don't fully know what King James is like, but that's probably the best comparison, <laughs> in that it's full of somewhat affected because this is only from 1950, <laughs> like thys and these and thous and stuff. Uh-huh. Okay, we start in chapter four. Mm-hmm. I know that we're going to get here later, so I want to talk about another book too, but just for an example for this one, it says, Now there cried a certain woman to the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondsmen. Mm-hmm. That's not the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> no, but, you know. Yeah. So biblical Hebrew doesn't have a distinction between formal and informal address, does it? It doesn't, but certainly there are distinctions when you're reading biblical Hebrew just because it's an older form. So like if you were a speaker of rabbinic Hebrew or even a speaker Mm -hmm. of modern Hebrew, though, of course, that's a little different because that's like a language that was dormant (laughs) and then brought back and changed a little bit. But anyway, you would recognize this as like old. It sounds old. And so there is a certain amount of sometimes people translate it to try and make it deliberately sound old to pick up that the Mm. Hebrew is old. Okay, that is actually a very good way of putting that translation decision, because I was mostly going to say it's a little bit of an affectation in that they're adding a level of formality or informality that isn't in the original text. I mean, I do think they're treating it with formality, but I also think they're treating it as older. And I do have some amount Mm -hmm. of respect for that as a translation decision, though I wouldn't make it for this particular text. The main thing there is just that 
thy is like if you know somebody or they're younger than you or in a lower social status. Well, it used to be. (laughs) It does not operate in that register now. It did when Mm. it was like a functioning part of the language, but it doesn't anymore. Okay. So you're saying that like 1950s die means you're and also I'm old timey. Yeah, that is what (laughs) I'm saying. I think. God, okay. Okay, so, but I also want to tell you a little bit about one other book that I've been reading that's also a Jewish book, though I didn't get this one from my grandfather. And I told you a little bit about this, but not our listeners. I got this book called Modern Reform Responsa. (laughs) And it's from like 1971 by this reform rabbi called Solomon Freehoff, who was at the Brodef Shalom Temple in Pittsburgh. And first of all, the title is funny to me because it's the fourth book in a series and (laughs) the other ones in the series are called Reform Responsa, Recent Reform Responsa, and Current Reform Responsa. And then this fourth one is called Modern Reform Responsa. Mm -hmm. And what did you say the like modern equivalent of that is? It's like titling your novel documents Final dot ducks. Final final dot ducks. Really final dot ducks. No, really final for sure. <laughs> Good. So that's how I feel about these titles. But also, it's wild to see how the denominational stuff has shifted over time. Mm. Especially because I'm going to be reading next, I think, a book that's like Reconstructionist answers directly by Kaplan about how they think the world works and Judaism works. And it's sort of fascinating to read how the denomination constructed it. This was printed by the Hebrew Union College Press, which is like the reform rabbinical school. Yeah. And the way this is written is like different people wrote in to this guy to ask questions about like, well, how should we think about this? Or how should we do this? And he answered them. And there is a question in here. The contents are organized by like rough descriptions of what the questions are about. And Mm -hmm. so there is a question in here and a chapter called Surgery for Transsexuals. Okay. In 1971, you said? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm sure this is interesting. Have you gotten to that part yet? Oh, yes, I have. Feelings? Well, this guy definitely didn't know any trans people. Woof. <laughs> there is some interesting stuff there about like when they're talking about the halachic categories of tumtum and androginos and the possibility of doing surgery if someone wanted to and mm-hmm. it felt medically necessary. But also, you know how there are things in modern day about how people try and do surgeries on intersex people just to make them like seem quote unquote normal, um, even if they're not medically Uh necessary. And this guy was saying like, you don't need to do that. Like if a person wants to have a particular surgery and it wouldn't be dangerous to their health, they totally can. But you don't need to do corrective surgery on people like that just for the sake of like, quote unquote, normality. That is a much more reasonable response than I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that like, when I say genuinely didn't know any trans people, like (laughs) genuinely doesn't know any trans people. So like this response is formed by the idea where he's like, wow, surgery to fully change someone's body sounds like a really, really dangerous procedure. And that's like a high boundary to get over and 
you shouldn't do mm. that except under very serious circumstances. And so there is like a small side note that's like, if a group of reputable doctors would declare that a patient is in grave psychological state and that only the transsexual operation could restore him to mental health, then in such an extreme case, the question might be reconsidered. But basically what they're saying is like, it's really hard for us to imagine a situation in which this is not really dangerous and really extreme and therefore mm-hmm. don't do it. Therefore get you know, three different doctors to agree that you're a hysterical tranny. Right, it's bad. Yeah. I am not in defense of this dude at all. Uh-huh. This is an interesting roller coaster of like, okay, I'm with you there. Mm, maybe not. Ooh, mm-mm. Mm, but that's okay in the context. It reminded me mostly of like, I could follow the line of reasoning and could understand how it would make sense to somebody and was reminded about like, if you just have somebody who doesn't know anything and treat them as an expert, (laughs) they are wrong about stuff. And that's why you have to have people who have direct lived experience of the questions you're asking and can say things like, well, actually, here's what hormones do. As people who know exactly what we're talking about on all subjects all the time, we've (laughs) definitely never had anybody write in to tell us that we're wrong about things. Hey, we can be wrong about things. And also, we never said, hey, okay, I don't want to say that we never said anything. Babe, we literally had an entire episode that was based on like, hey, I disagree with this pretty fundamentally. I'm not saying that we can never be wrong about things. Of course, we can be wrong about things. Anyway, also, this guy was also wrong. (laughs) So we were also talking recently about Andrea Dworkin. Uh Uh-huh. For those who don't know who Andrea Dworkin is, Andrea Dworkin was a second wave feminist writer and theorist who does not appear to have been trans-exclusionary in her own personal life, but whose work is very often cited by people who are being transphobic. Right. And so I am much more sympathetic to radical feminism outside of the idea of trans-exclusionary radical feminism. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's like a thing where a lot of the people writing it have very broad statements. And anyway, not to get down that whole rabbit hole, but that just feels like a very similar thing where it's like, Well, I can definitely see where this is in context really great, and I totally agree with you. But if somebody's just, like, picking and choosing certain lines, I do not trust them. Right. Love, do you have any cool queer Jewish things that you'd like to add? Because we talked about mine for a while. Uh, The closest thing that I have is that I got a really good illustration of the difference between taboos and mores. Oh. Just in a discussion about alignment in tabletop role-playing games, specifically ones that are descended from D&D, and also around, like, the cannibalism taboo, because there's a lot of stuff about, like, necromancy in especially third edition of D&D, which is the one that I'm most familiar with. I don't know. (laughs) Wait, how is that queer and or Jewish? So all the people involved were gay, and most of us were trans. Several of us have Jewish hearts, and it actually made everyone involved feel pretty bad, but it was an interesting moral discussion. Aww. Turns out that taboos make people feel really bad. (laughs) So. All right, well, on that note, would you like to start the episode? No, but I will anyway. One, two, three, four.
Kosher Queer is a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week we bring you queer takes on Torah. They're Jazz. And she's Lulav. And we're here to joke about Judaism and talk Tanakh together. Today our Chavruta is learning the Haftarah of Vayera, which is 2 Kings chapter 4, lines 1 through 37. Yeah! Do you have any things up top to say about this, Jazz? Like, it's a new book, right? <laughs> Yeah, we haven't talked about kings before, Mm -hmm. either of the books of kings, which many of the books in the Torah were called different things in Hebrew than in English. I don't think that's true from most of the rest of the Tanakh. Like, this is just called Malachim, kings. Oh. And all of the books of the prophets are just called by their names. Sorry, you said Malachim? Malachim, yeah. Okay, cool. So, this week, you are telling us about Vayera, which is not to be confused with Vaera. They're spelled slightly differently, but in Hebrew and not super noticeably in English. <laughs> yeah, the transliterations that we use has the difference between a Y and an apostrophe. And it's not an apostrophe that is there for a Shva. It's an apostrophe that precedes an Ayin. Which is fair to me, uh-huh. because... That is a way that in English we often indicate glottal stops, which is what a ayin yeah. was for Hebrew. Like, that's why there's a, a apostrophe in Hawaii. Yeah. Can you say va'era using your best linguist voice? Well, I'm not great at biblical Hebrew mm-hmm. in an accent sense because I've never learned formally the proper biblical pronunciation. And also it varies like if you have an Ashkenazi versus a Sephardi mm-hmm. versus a Mizrahi versus a I don't know trying to be the most historically accurate so <laughs> real disclaimer that I really really do not know but I guess I would probably go with Vaera. okay cool so I wasn't as far as I can tell saying it horribly wrong no 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 <laughs> and also I didn't pay any attention to the race so okay. anyway whatever okay so, this one, however, is Vayera. Tell us a little bit about how that went. How much time would you like? Oh my god, like 75 seconds? Okay. Ready, set, go. So much happens in this parsha, I got whiplash rereading it. <laughs> Abraham welcomes some nosy guests, Sarah laughs at them, and God makes fun of her for it. Then Abraham negotiates with God and wins. Lot is a gracious host, but not a great dad. But everyone else in the city is so much worse. So they're destroyed, and so is his wife. Lot's daughters are totally creepy, which is just a way of slandering some neighbors. And then Abraham thinks it's a good idea to mess with a local king and lie about his relationship with Sarah. Finally, he fesses up and is rewarded with presents, which is a terrible incentive system. (laughs) Isaac is born and grows up. Sarah throws Hagar out into the desert with water. God takes care of them, and Ishmael grows up to be a hot hunter. God (laughs) pretends Abraham only has one son and asks Abraham to kill Isaac. Abraham makes a whole production about it, and God slams on the brakes at the last second, and everybody lives. Cool. You had 23 seconds left over. Yo. So I think that makes up for every bit of time that you went over in season one. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. 
there's just so much happening in this Parsha. Uh-huh. We're not even going to go back and talk about it. I just want to emphasize again that, like, half of the Torah stories that I learned growing up, I feel like are from this one Parsha. <laughs> yeah. Also, I know this isn't strictly related to our Haftarah, but may I share the thought that I shared with you right yes, before we recorded? Yes, <laughs> Okay. Which is that I was rereading and remembering how... God has this whole production of repeating to Abraham like three times. Take your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac. And anyway, so what if Ishmael is trans and that's why God says you only have one son? Because God's trying real hard to remind Abraham not to call Ishmael his son. Because God doesn't misgender people. Ishmael is too cool for gender? Yeah, sure. Okay. (laughs) I just mostly mean like... If Isaac is Abraham's only son, then Mm -hmm. Ishmael is like, I don't know, maybe his daughter or something. Yeah, that's great. Who is like, you know, living a nice life with her mom, being good at archery, and not hanging out with her deadbeat dad who threw her out. Actually, yeah, I just thought of like a proto-Jewish trans girl who's really good at archery and now I'm really distracted. Hi. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, getting back to the dang thing, what were we talking about? Malachim. Oh, right. So, how does this relate to the part of Second Malachim that we read? The connection is thematic in that the Haftarah that we wrote is about a child dying slash Mm -hmm. almost dying a child who was very much wanted and prayed for and who was almost lost yeah i definitely think that's the salient point here there's an interesting sense in which instead of the father being willing to sacrifice the child the mother is like hey we're getting this child back it's gonna happen make it happen yeah (laughs) The father is very, very uninvolved in this story. Mm-hmm. And it is a little bit interesting because it's like a swapping a bit with the role of Sarah, who was fairly uninvolved in the story of yeah, Isaac in the sacrifice part and didn't even hear about it in the same way that the husband in the Haftarah doesn't hear about his son's death. Mm-hmm. So did you notice the thing about Moab? No. Which thing about Moab? I was reading the summary of Vaira on myjewishlearning.com. And oh, you mean the thing about Moab in the Parsha? I thought you were talking about the Haftarah. Okay. Well, what are the three things? Themes, characters, and facts? <laughs> okay. I feel like this is a fact. Or okay. as we say in actual literary analysis, a motif. Okay. I'm not sure how relevant it is. Do you remember who Moab was in Vayera? Yeah, it's the son and grandson of Lot. Oh, of Lot. Oh, okay. So we're finally maybe getting these people back? I think they have come back at other points too. Okay. But definitely the Moabites are their neighbors who they slandered by saying they were children of incest. Oh, right. The worst part of this Parsha. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. 
So can I tell you a little bit about the historical context? Okay. So the first line of this book, not of this portion, but the whole book of Second Kings, tells us that King Ahav of the Northern Kingdom has died. This puts us about 60 years after Yeruvom split the kingdoms in two, right? Remember the whole rebellion with Yeruvom that happened right after Solomon died and resulted in the northern kingdom of Israel being separate from the southern kingdom of Yehuda? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. So this is just 60 years later, after you've had like several rulers on both sides die and get coordinated. Mm-hmm. So Ahav who you may recognize from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as Ahab. The whale dude. Wait, no, that's Moby Dick. I'm thinking of Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. My bad. Yeah, this is the whale guy. This is the whale guy. (laughs) There is a podcast that's slowly rereading chapter by chapter of Moby Dick, so... That's amazing. Yeah. I kind of want to listen to that. Okay. My entire exposure to Moby Dick was in junior year English class. We did this thing where instead of actually reading stuff, we would read a couple chapters. So instead of subjecting everybody in class to reading The Scarlet Letter, Mm -hmm. everybody was assigned like two chapters of The Scarlet Letter. And we just went down the line and had like a book report on... Um, ways in which English is not used the same anymore, and also short summary of the chapter. And then for Moby Dick, it was like, here's one chapter from the beginning, and then one random chapter from the middle, and a basic overview of how this is like a 900-page book with a bunch of unrelated diatribes about whaling. Nice. The Moby Dick podcast is tangentially related to us because at least one and probably both of the hosts are Jewish. Oh, fun. Also, the podcast is called Moby Dick Energy, so. (laughs) No! I love that! (laughs) Hold on, I need to write this down so I don't forget about it after hanging up. I'll text it to you. Okay, so anyway, all that we know about Ahav, or in English Ahab, is that he died. Um, there's a little more context with him dying in battle or something that I'm not entirely clear on. But the important thing here is he died. And he was succeeded by Ahaziah, who was ruling at the same time as Jehoshaphat. So that's where the book of Second Kings starts. Okay. And basically all that we get about Ahaziah in this book is that he falls through a roof and is linkening it. Is sorry? It's old-timey stuff, so he's like lying in a bed getting ready to die over the course of several days. Like Abraham Lincoln. Okay. So there are these two prophets, a father-son duo named Eliyahu and Elisha. Are they a father-son duo? Aren't they? In the chapters that I was reading, it was like, Elisha is the son of Eliyahu. So, I don't think that he's his son. I think that they occasionally use metaphorical or, like, dramatic language that is like, my father, my father, or if you prefer, daddy, daddy, but- No, I don't prefer! (laughs) Illegal! Um, but Elijah is definitely not his dad. He's like his teacher, um, or mentor or whatever. 
Okay, so there's Eliyahu, who is the big D word of Elisha. Nope. It also may help that, like, father didn't quite carry the same connotations necessarily that you would have in English, is my impression. It's an honorific, sure, but, like, I don't think it has to be assumed that Elisha thinks of him as, like, a father figure, even. Okay, that's fair. Question. This is Eliyahu... Hatishvi. Yeah. So is that the same person as Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet? It sure is. In fact, at the end of Havdalah, we have a song that includes both of those titles for him, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishvi, Eliyahu, Eliyahu. Anyway, both of those are parts of his name. And I actually was a little bit surprised that I hadn't heard of the relationship between Alicia and Eliyahu before because Mm. it's... What's the word I'm looking for? Mm -hmm. Devoted? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of stuff about, like, Eliyahu's like, I am going to die today, so perhaps you want to go away from me. And Alicia's like, I would never leave you. I will go with you. (laughs) Right? It's a lot. (laughs) It's very devoted, is uh, what I would say about that. Yeah. So anyway, there are three chapters before the chapter that we read. In the first chapter, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, remember, that's the one that doesn't have the temple in it, falls through a roof. And he's like, hey, ask Balzavov, who we hear in English as Beelzebub, the Lord of Flies. I never realized that Beelzebub, or however you say that in English, mm-hmm. is related to like how all of the gods there are called Baal something. Right? <laughs> it's fun. So the king of Israel is like, hey, ask this pagan god if I'm going to recover. And a messenger from Hashem goes to Eliyahu Hatishbi and is like, hey, go and confront these messengers and tell them this thing. And so Eliyahu goes and says to the messengers, hey, go and tell the king this thing that I was told by an angel. And then the messengers go back to the king and they say, hey, this is a thing that was told by a guy with an angel. And the king is like, who told you about this? And they describe the leather man from the village people. (laughs) So he's immediately like, oh, that's Glenn Michael Hughes. I mean, Eliyahu (laughs) Hatushvi. And so this is just a thing that like sets up the whole deal with the prophets, I guess, because this is the legacy of Eliyahu is that like the king sends a bunch of soldiers after him and he flame strikes them like a 13th level cleric in D&D. And then the king sends another 50 and he does the same thing. And then another 50, except for this time, the lieutenant is like, hey, 
please don't kill us. I am coming to you on bended knee. Can you just come with me? And Eliyahu does. And then the king died after Eliyahu was like, you're going to die. So that's the whole thing with Eliyahu being cool. Number two, Eliyahu and Elisha are hanging out. There's the whole thing about how they're really close and Eliyahu is about to be taken up in a whirlwind. And then he does get taken up in a whirlwind. And Elisha is like, hey, can I have like even a little bit of how cool you are? And he He's like, Simba, it was within you all along. Mm. (laughs) What? I'm taking liberties with the text. Yeah, I was just going to say the direction I would have taken the liberties in is more like Adam Silvera's They Both Die at the End. I am unfamiliar with that. Tell me about it. It's a YA book in which two boys fall in love over the course of a day and then they both die at the end. Was that on your shelf? No, otherwise I would have lent it to you. Okay. I love tragedy, but not burying your gaze, but tragedy. (laughs) I don't think it's burying your gaze. Because they both die at the end. (laughs) I think gay people are allowed to write tragedies and that it is different than like straight people who have to kill one of them off because they're not allowed to be gay. That's fair. Anyway, Elisha takes up the mantle of the prophet, and then apparently a hundred kids are making fun of him for being bald. I'm not sure if there was a bald village person. Whatever. Point is, they're making fun of him. He summons some bears, and the bears maul 42 children. And then in the next one, there's a new king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He gets rid of the whole, like, pillars of Baal that his father made, but he's still, quote, clinging to the sins which Yervom, son of Nevat, caused Israel to commit. So I guess that just means they're still doing pagan worship? I think the important context at this point is for people to be like, Elisha was really, really close to Eliyahu and then right. entangled with some people and then entangled with some kings and was just like doing an all around thing of like being the one who inherits stuff after Eliyahu's gone. Yes. So there are two stories here. It starts out kind of setting up who Elisha is in relationship to the people he is a prophet for. So there is a certain woman who says that her husband is dead and the creditor is coming to get the children. And so he's like, uh, let's see here, what's in your house? And she says, I have a jug of oil. Nothing much, really, other than that. And he said, okay, get a bunch of vessels. Everything from your neighbors, get plastic pitchers and dog bowls and colanders, maybe not colanders, all of that stuff, and pour the oil from your one jug into those jugs. And she does. And they keep pouring. So she has a ton of vessels of oil, which she then sells to pay her debt. I'm not sure how this relates to the rest of the story, other than being like, This is the cool stuff that Alicia does. Yeah, I think it's a confirmation of like, he has magic powers and Mm -hmm. there's a reason that somebody would turn to him. Yeah. I also think there's something with the storytelling here where it's really bridging a gap around magic, where like, I was familiar with the whole thing with Moshe, where he was doing some snake tricks and causing water to come forth from things. And I read like a decade ago, the synoptic gospels 
for Christianity, which are like, woo, this is super magic. And I think we're getting a certain level of miracle work here Mm -hmm. that kind of bridges the gap between how those feel. Because I feel like Moshe's whole thing was channeling power for God, and Elisha seems to be doing a lot more straightforward stuff here. I don't know how I can really phrase that feeling. Well, it's interesting to me, because like we have other magic-y stuff that they're very clear is also like a power of God later, too, even in Talmudic times, which is after this. Mm-hmm. I haven't read a lot of Christian source texts, but this does remind me of them. And in particular, makes me think of how, like, when I hear about Christians talking about Jesus-related miracles, they're talking about things like... The fish and the bread. Multiplying food and bringing people back from the dead, both of which Alicia does in this chapter. Yeah, that's fair. So it feels like a different type of framework of where you can look at this thing and be like, yeah, that is a person of God in the sense that, like, there's a miracle happening, but Mm -hmm. nobody looks at Alicia and is like, this person is literally God. Right. For instance, the next story is that he stays at this lady's Airbnb, except for the gig economy doesn't exist, and it's basically just a guest room for him specifically, Baruch Hashem. It's very sweet. It's like he often passes through town and she's like, oh, we should have a spot. So he always has a place to stay when he passes through and he can always stay with us. Yeah. And she calls him a holy man of God, which was the segue I was trying to make there. Yeah. Do you know how she knows that he's a holy man of God, according to Rashi? Oh, do tell. I didn't look at any of the commentary. Okay. And whenever he would pass, he would stop there to eat a meal. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that he is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. And Rashi has a comment that says, For she never saw a fly on his table or semen on his sheet. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, okay. So anybody who has even had friends working in the hospitality industry can probably tell you that that's a pretty common sight. So that's fair. She's like, gotta be a holy person. She gave him five stars on the app. To me, also, this seems like a clever strategy. Okay. In that she's saying a thing to her husband. And if what she's noticing is, hey, he's a really good house guest. And the thing she says is, he's obviously holy. Then she gets to have house guests who are very considerate. Hmm. As opposed to whoever else might stay in that room. Speaking (laughs) of the gig economy. Woof. So they make him the fancy room and he's like, oh, this room, it's for me. And so he calls his servant and asks her to ask the lady if he can do anything for her. And the lady is like, I'm fine. We're fine. It's okay. I don't have a son. My husband's old. I live among my own people. And so Elisha's like, okay, we have to meet face to face. And he says, this time next year. You will be embracing a son. I guess that's another lineup with the Parsha, because the messengers of God say that to Abraham and Sarah, too. Yeah, and like the messengers of God are specifically people who are just kind of chilling with Abraham. Right. Like they're just Airbnb house guests. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very similar thing where it's like, you're gonna have a son, and she's like, ha ha ha, I am laughing about that. I have a question for you. Except for she doesn't laugh. She's like, don't lie to me. Go ahead. 
Yeah, well, so her reaction is don't lie to me. And what the servant says is not that she's old. It's just that her husband is old and her Mm. husband can't theoretically, I guess, is the implication, impregnate her. But that's not to say that there's anything going on with her. Mm. And the thing that he says is like, in a year. And anyway, what are the odds that you think he impregnates her? Hmm. So the cynical reading is like, yeah, of course, that works out so well. He's a good house guest, and we know that he doesn't spill his seed. But the less cynical reading is like, no, they're just good friends. He, like, helped her figure out how to do pregnancy planning. and I don't understand why the thing I said is incompatible with the thing you said. My bio dad is a person who's just good friends with my mom. That's fair. <laughs> okay. I stand corrected, and that's not even cynical. That's just what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Though it is the same season the following year, so I guess this baby had, like, a really big head or something? Listen, seasons are not exact time frame. They didn't say it's the same month. Like... Okay, okay. So the child grows up, and he goes out into the field, and he's like, Oh no, I have um, viral meningitis. And he goes home and dies. (laughs) And then the woman is like, oh, no, we have to get Alicia. And so they do. And she's doing this not like, oh, we just have to send a messenger and it'll work out. It's like, no, we have to do it right now. We are going to the holy dude, even though it's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And make sure that the donkey doesn't slow down until I tell you. And so they come upon her and Alicia sees her and is like, Oh my god, servant Gehasi, please just like go and say, how's everything going? And so she does. You make it sound like he didn't want to see her. That does not sound like the case. That's true. I don't understand why it would be framed this way otherwise, because it says, go hurry toward her and ask her, how are you? How is your husband? How is the child? We are well, she replied. Yeah, but- But- when she came up to the man of God on the mountain, she clasped his feet. Gehazi stepped forward to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. That seems not like the deal. Like, it seems to me like Gehazi is the standard person who has to go greet everybody, and he sees her from far off and is like, Oh, go greet her. And Gehazi greets her and is protective and is like i have greeted her now she can go away and instead alicia is like but it is my friend and something seems wrong like it doesn't seem like she just came to call a pleasant call and now can go home it seems like you didn't actually get the full story because she didn't tell it to you because you were being all growly and not welcoming also i do think this relates to the earlier incident where he was like gehazi go talk to this lady and figure out what we can possibly do for her for making us this guest room Mm -hmm. and she was like oh there's nothing and so it meant that he himself had to meet with the lady maybe gehazi is jealous (laughs) that's fair that alicia got this lady pregnant and he's like i want to spend all my time with alicia (laughs) and alicia is like gehazi i love you but i helped out my friend and now she's in uh, trouble so i need to help her out yeah So she's in a trouble and he needs to help her out. He says, tie up your skirts, take my staff in your hand and go. You are going to be the one who revives your child by placing my staff on his face. You can't talk to anyone though. 
And she's like, yo, as the being God bees, and as you be, I will not leave you. So he's like, okay, okay, I'll come with you. And Gehazi had gone first and placed the staff on the child's face. And that didn't work. So he was like, the boy has not awakened. And then Elisha comes in and is like, I'm going to take this on my own. And then here's a really interesting in-depth description of the magic he does, which is he mounts the bed or couch or whatever and just lies on top of the child, like mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And that warms the kid up. Yeah, this is just a very interesting thing. Is there anything about the magic that speaks to you? It's almost Sleeping Beauty-esque, except (laughs) instead of being roused by a suitor she does not know, it's Mm -hmm. like the boy suddenly wakes up to a bunch of concerned adults who care about his (laughs) well-being. Good. One of who is his mom, and the other is his bio dad and his bio dad's boyfriend, who he doesn't know very well. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's the end of the Parsha, basically. There are two more lines, and it's just that this lady was thankful. And then, I think, never mentioned again. So this definitely feels very close to the, what's it called? Ayaka? Akeda. With Avraham and Yitzhak. So in this case, the child literally dies, despite no particular action on the part of the parents, and then they take great action to bring him back. And in the Akedah, the father is willing to sacrifice the child, presumably because he believes that this is the right thing to do no matter what, and instead he gets the kid back. Do you have thoughts on that contrast? Well... I mean, I think there's something here about, like, Abraham passively accepts that maybe his child is destined for something and is, in fact, willing to make something bad happen, even though it was a son he very much prayed for. Mm -hmm. And this mother, whose name we don't even get, prayed for this child. And then when something bad seems to have happened to that child, she doesn't just accept it. She goes out of her way to recruit appropriate help. And she doesn't tell anybody she thinks might not wholeheartedly help. So she doesn't tell her husband and she doesn't tell Gehazi and she doesn't tell anybody until she gets to somebody who she thinks she can trust to really help her. So it's a similar solo journey, yeah? Yeah, except what's happening is different. It's like a God will be doing the right thing, even if that's killing my child, versus this person of God will do the right thing, which means they are the only one who I can count on to save my child. Mm -hmm. And I also do think that there's something there about like a person who's proven they're a really trustworthy part of your support system before is a person you turn to in times of need. Yeah. Like, he was there for her before when nobody else was, so she turned to him again. That's really cool. I like that. Are you ready to rate God's writing? I am. Lulav, out of two prophet boyfriends, how many prophet boyfriends would you rate this Haftarah? Okay. I would rate this two prophet boyfriends, but one of them is already whizzing away in a chariot. (laughs) Okay. This was very silly, but also really interesting to read. Mm. And I liked the dogged persistence of somebody being like, no, I know my son's dead, but my son's not dead. Change this. (laughs) 
it's cool to see how we can just kind of browbeat God into a better world. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, if you do have a sudden onset really bad headache, especially if accompanied by a fever, immediately go to the emergency room because that probably is meningitis. And uh, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of unrelated. Point is, the characters were interesting. I liked how jovially everybody interacted with each other. Hmm. I am always here for narrative. (laughs) True. (laughs) Jazz, out of, let's say, a hundred extremely rude children. (laughs) How many extremely rude children would you rate this Parsha? I would rate this Haftarah portion 70 rude children and 20 more not particularly rude children who could maybe use a little bit more opportunity to flex their voice. (laughs) Okay. I don't really believe in rudeness so much as a concept for children. Like, children are still learning how to navigate the world. So, like, the whole point of, like, teaching a child is teaching them, like, how to be, like, a kind and thoughtful and considerate person. Yeah. So rudeness mostly means, like, they haven't learned about a thing yet, or they are being taught with, like, a different set of norms. Or they're just, like, saying a thing because they can, and you have to be like, no, let's learn some empathy. Right. And then they do eventually, speaking from my experience as a child. (laughs) Yeah, they're just still learning a lot of things, and that's on the people who are helping teach them to help them learn it to some extent. Mm -hmm. So A, how does that relate? And B is 70 rude children and 20 children who could stand to flex their voices more a good rating or a bad rating? It's a good rating. Okay. (laughs) I liked it. This was a sweet story. I thought it's like a story with a good parent, which like there aren't enough of in Torah. (laughs) It's a story which I think has some nice unconventional family readings potentially. I don't love the relationship between like the husband and wife in this Mm -hmm. story insofar as we see it at all. Which I don't think we do. Like he's almost never on screen except as somebody who's getting talked to, right? Yeah, he's (laughs) sort of off screen for the most part in the way that like Frozone's wife in (laughs) The Incredibles is. Yeah. Or in the way that most women are throughout the Bible. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. But- I like a lot of what's happening here. I like Alicia. It's like the first time we've gotten a thing with him and he seems rad. So. That's really cool. Jazz, can you take us to the close? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you weekly bonus content and help us keep making this for you. Also, if you can't commit to ongoing support, but would still like to contribute, you can give to our Kofi, which is at ko-fi.com slash kosherqueers. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. And please spread the word about our podcast. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Privila, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by our excellent audio editor, Ezra Faust. Our transcript team of Jazz, Ruben, Diko, and Chesed 
brings you full transcripts of every episode. You can find a link to those in the episode descriptions on Buzzsprout. I'm Jazz Tversky, and you can find me at WordNerdKnitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Lenape people. I'm Lula Varno, and you can find me at Spacetruck6 on Twitter, or yell at me at Palmliker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute and Anishinaabeg. Have, Have a, a lovely, lovely queer, queer Jewish, Jewish day! This week's gender is... Not into you specifically quoting Dworkin. This week's pronouns are... They and them.